0: Bridgebank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. Bridgebank, a division of Western Alliance Bank, Bridgebank. Be Bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's hey podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mindshift, Right Nowish and more all tell the stories of the bay and beyond
1: This is
2: the California Report. Good morning. I'm Lily Jamali. We begin in Washington, where the House Judiciary Committee is holding a hearing this morning on discrimination and violence against Asian Americans. The hearing was scheduled prior to Tuesday's deadly shooting spree at Asian owned businesses in Atlanta that left eight people dead. But that's brought even more urgency to the rise in hate incidents against the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities in the U.S. Southern California Congresswoman Judy Chu is chair of the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus.
0: The Asian American community has reached a crisis point that cannot be ignored. Since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, Asian Americans have been terrified by the alarming surge in anti-Asian bigotry and violence we have witnessed across our nation. In fact, it was over one year ago that KPAC first began to sound the alarm bells about the anti-Asian discrimination we were beginning to see due to misinformation and stigma that wrongly associated Asian Americans with the coronavirus. But what started out last January is dirty looks and verbal assaults has escalated to physical attacks and violence against innocent Asian Americans. And these attacks have increasingly become more deadly. Just as many Asian Americans were preparing for the Lunar New Year last month, we saw a surge in anti-Asian violence. Many of the victims have been older and vulnerable, like Visha Ratanapakti, an 84-year-old Thai man in San Francisco, who was killed in an unprovoked assault while on this morning walk. In New York, 61 year old Noel Quintana's face was slashed from ear to ear with a box cutter in the subway requiring 100 stitches. In Oakland's Chinatown, a camera captured a 91 year old man being thrown to the ground by an assailant. In my own congressional district, a Chinese American man was attacked, at a bus stop in Rosemead with his own cane, causing him to lose part of his finger.
2: That was Judy Chu, chair of the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus. Lawmakers across the state have condemned the violence in Atlanta. The state has seen a rise in attacks against people of Asian American descent this year, including several high-profile incidents in the Bay Area. The cities of San Francisco and Los Angeles have already said they plan to increase police patrols as a precaution. The Biden administration has said the U.S.-Mexico border is still closed to asylum seekers. A month ago, officials began admitting people who had previously passed an initial asylum screening but who were forced to remain in Mexico under a Trump administration policy. Now, migrants who were affected by that policy are wondering when they'll get a chance to ask for protection in the U.S. Reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler went to visit an encampment with hundreds of people waiting on the Mexican side of the border near San Diego.
1: Marjorie Rosales and her daughter have been living in shelters in Tijuana for a year after fleeing Honduras. Almost a month ago, she pitched a tent outside the port of entry. She told me she would not leave until she could apply for asylum. Last Friday, she was still there. She said it's been tough because of the rain. Her clothes are now wet. There's been freezing temperatures at night and in the morning. Rosales is not alone. She's one of thousands of asylum seekers stuck in Tijuana, many now for well over a year. After the start of the pandemic, the Trump administration used a public health regulation to turn back all migrants along the border. President Joe Biden, for the most part, has kept that rule in place with one notable change. Children traveling alone are now being allowed into the US. But families like Rosales and her young daughter still don't know when that rule will be lifted. They are going to remain until there is a defined process. Ian Philebaum is with Innovation Lawline, the nonprofit which advocates on behalf of asylum seekers. The absence of those guidelines is the number one reason that this camp currently exists. On Friday morning at the camp, there was a flurry of activity. A kitchen was distributing food, Doctors were looking into the health of migrants, and school was in session, led by asylum seekers who had been teachers in their home country. 26-year-old Evelyn Sanchez from Honduras is one of the teachers.
2: Well, I feel
3: that children stress. She
1: said she feels that the children experience stress, and school is a way for them to relax. They're not necessarily going to learn their letters or numbers, but they can share their life experiences with their classmates. She feels that people like her are common in the camp, people with something to contribute.
2: Comparten sus experiencias de vida. Somos personas educadas con principios, con valores. She says they're educated people
1: with principles, with values. They aren't just a nuisance or society's garbage. They're simply migrants with rights, the same as everyone else. Like Sanchez, many are here from Central America, especially Honduras. But residents in the camp come from across the world, including many Haitians who have recently arrived in Tijuana as the political situation in their country continues to deteriorate. Jean-Claude Jean fled Haiti five years ago after he was attacked by a criminal group. He then spent five years in Chile working construction and only arrived in Mexico a few weeks ago. He told me that his mother was killed by the people looking for him. And if he returned to Haiti today, he'd be dead tomorrow. Right now, the Biden administration is focused on finding shelter for the rising numbers of unaccompanied children arriving at the southwest border, mostly in Texas. Marjorie Rosales said the reason she's camped out here in Tijuana is because she doesn't want to send her young daughter across the border alone. This is why I'm here, she told me, to be legal. She says she's in danger in Honduras and very afraid. She wants help or just some sort of plan to come soon. For the California report, I'm Max Lynn Nadler in Tijuana.
0: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment.
3: with an S. Thanks.
2: This week we mark one year since the start of California's COVID-19 shutdown. That's when I first spoke to Dr. Erica Pahn, who at the time was Alameda County's public health officer. Dr. Pahn is now California's state epidemiologist. I spoke with her earlier to bring our last conversation full circle. So at this time last year, as school districts were announcing two to four-week closures, the Bay Area was locking down for three weeks, you and I talked just as those closures were set to start, and you told me, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you said it could be quite a while longer, and here we are a year later, and I just wonder if you can reflect on that
3: very prescient call that you made, (laughs) then. Yeah, it is uh, really amazing to think about that time and a year ago. And I will say, while I did think it was definitely going to be longer than, you know, two to four weeks, I did not envision it being uh, as long as it has been. Um, So I do Mm -hmm. think the magnitude of of this pandemic has continued to uh, surprise us.
2: Absolutely. Well, California, for folks who don't know, has a vaccine advisory committee. You serve on that committee. And we know that President Biden has set a goal of getting everyone eligible, vaccinated by May 1st across the country. Does that seem like a realistic goal for California
3: right now? I think so. I I think, you know, we're basically dependent on that supply from the federal government. So if, you know, we are um, excited to hear that the Biden administration does think that they will have enough supply that Um, that people will be eligible. I think people need to keep in mind that eligibility, you know, still means it will take uh, several weeks to get people in and vaccinated. And because two of our three vaccines are two doses, it will obviously take, you know, several weeks even to get, as people get their clinic appointments and get in to get vaccinated. But I think it is exciting to hear that we will have a lot more supply by May and that we can really, sound like we'll be able to open up further.
2: There is a perception, and I'm sure you've heard this among some, that the state has flip-flopped on the issue of equity when it comes to vaccine distribution. Even the latest attempt to send, I think it was 40% of vaccines to the hardest-hit zip codes is being criticized, at least here in the Bay Area, as inequitable. And we've also seen reporting that wealthier people are getting more vaccines, sometimes by going to clinics intended for the disadvantaged. Are you satisfied with where the state's equity strategy is
3: right now? I think it's it's definitely an iterative process and it needs to be multilayered. So I think, you know, it's really clear that you have to do multiple things, right? You have to get the vaccines um, allocated and delivered to the places where you want the the people who are there to get them. But then you also have to do a lot of other things, especially in our communities that are most disproportionately impacted. So we have to make sure we have alternatives to, you know, web-based technology in order for people to sign up. So working with um, other community-based organizations or other Uh, On the ground, frontline providers that can do those kinds of things, making sure that the hours are available. Um, I think it's really been challenging throughout this uh, having this scarce vaccine resource to try to again balance not having barriers to access for people who you want to reach, but also uh, making sure you are trying to have some level of verification. And and a lot of this is, you know. uh, a balance, again, of an honor system versus verification, Mm -hmm. which also leads to barriers to the people we most want to reach. And we're also thinking about this from a statewide perspective. So, I mean, you know, we're really thinking about where the most disease burden is and the Bay Area has done a great job and I'm really proud to be a a former Bay Area health officer. And I think the Bay Area as a community has really come together to comply with a lot of the public health interventions. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, again, we're trying to get vaccine to where there's the most disease and the most impact.
2: And you just mentioned you you were the former top public health official in Alameda County. I want to ask you about something that's breaking this last week here in Alameda County, where I happen to live. You were targeted last spring, of course, um, quite memorably by Elon Musk when the county ordered Tesla's plant in Fremont to close. And a lot of people will remember he went ahead and reopened anyway. Just this weekend, we learned that there were hundreds of cases of COVID there since May. There have been. Why did Alameda County stop disclosing information about infections there?
3: I'm going to defer all questions about this to Alameda County Public Health.
2: Okay, let me let me ask you a follow-up question, because you, you were the, the public health official uh, at the time, um, and I just wondered, do you have any regrets about relenting when Musk pushed back the way that he did? um, and allowing the plant to reopen? I
3: think with everything that, uh, we have done there, and in general, I think, you know, we always take a consistent approach to, you know, what are the, um, the sort of different sectors, and what are kind of the safeguards that need to put in place before we allow various things to open, and trying to do that in a way that, uh, is equitable to, you know, other analogous uh, situations. So I, I think we've followed all of those principles.
2: You know, the allegation is, and this is coming from the website Plainsight, which first reported this, they say that the county used HIPAA as a false pretense to conceal data as far back as May, which, again, is when you were still in your role there. Do you want to
3: at least respond to that characterization? I, I can respond in general about sort of outbreaks and uh, public health and public reporting. I think, in general, historically, prior to this pandemic, public health has been very conscientious about protecting both individual privacy and protections. And also, you know, related to that is individual locations. So we have found historically in my career as a public health uh, and you know, chemical disease response that if uh, workplaces or um, you know various facilities are concerned about uh if they don't trust to report then if there are incentives not to report then that really leads to a difficult relationship and um, really in public health we always wanted people to be able to report to us so we could work with them to put in all the right mitigation measures and prevention measures to contain an outbreak and so there have always been historically concerns that if if you're automatically reporting things that don't necessarily have a broader public health impact, if it's not going to change what everyone in a community is going to do differently, that really we have tried historically to focus in on being able to do those interventions at that site and make sure that appropriate notifications happen at that site. I do mm-hmm. think this pandemic has changed that perspective in general. I think there's just been a lot more interest from people of, of, with COVID-19. And I think it's really changed that dynamic. Uh, There's a lot more reporting, but I do think that it makes it harder sometimes. And I think there are more uh, places or locations that are supposed to report that are more hesitant because of the the public nature of all this. So I think it's one of the many kind of challenges that have shifted over the course of this pandemic. It's hard to
2: look at how Elon Musk, Dr. Pan, treated you back then and not think that a powerful person ignored the rules and ended up getting his way. Um, and, and I think that speaks to the bullying and harassment that a lot of public health officials all around the state have experienced over the last year. Um, in this case, you know, there's a further allegation that the county was complicit in keeping important and potentially life-saving information from the public. But it sounds like you don't want to weigh in further on that at this point. But I do wonder, what has the conversation been like this past year among public health officials? That you talk to. I know you probably all have a network, right?
3: Absolutely. Yes, we have um, a broad um, California conference of local health officers, and then we at the state health department uh, work closely with that organization. There's also a county health executives organization that we, you know, meet frequently with. I think it's really, yeah, it's been a fascinating um, and challenging time to be a public health official during this pandemic. I'd say prior to last March, very few people even knew what a public health officer was. Mm-hmm. Um, Historically, we were doing our job well. No one heard about it. Uh, you know, I think I, I used to joke about that part all this—that you know, our successes were silent. Um, even just thinking back about measles outbreaks and when we would quarantine uh, context of measles outbreaks, and if they became positive in their homes, and they didn't infect other people. That was our success, but but no no one heard about that. So I think it's been a real shift for us. Um, During this pandemic, we've been front and center and in a place where a lot of our decisions are an attempt, all of our decisions are an attempt to balance public health protections and other impacts that ultimately are often disappointing to an individual or a group or stakeholder. Um, And I think it's been just, you know, with this constant emerging science and data that we're all attending to, but there's so many issues with no consensus or clear answers. And there are always people that are disagreeing on both sides. In fact, sometimes I also joke that if I hear enough concern from both sides, sometimes maybe we found the right compromise. So well, I mean, and the
2: issue of of both sides—you know, there's science and then there's you know hearsay. Um, I feel like this has been a moment where science has won in certain quarters, but has really been—I mean, the mask wearing is being a great example where there aren't two sides to the science, right? Yes,
3: I agree with you there. There are not two sides to that side.
2: Well, speaking of masks, do you think we will be wearing masks for the foreseeable future?
3: I do, actually. I think this is the, you know, the, one of the much easier interventions, actually, right? I think early on, it's taken all of us a while to get more used to it, and I think it'll take more time. But I do think, you know, compared to a lot of the other much more you know, aggressive interventions, like, you know, the 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 really extreme stay-at-home that we did Um, issue a year ago, masks are much easier. And I do think, especially until we can get our kids vaccinated, which is a a large proportion of our population, um, you know, we need to get the entire globe vaccinated before we're really going to see a lot less disease Mm -hmm. um, internationally as well. So I do think we're going to be wearing masks for the foreseeable future.
2: Dr. Erica Pan is California's state epidemiologist. Thank you so much for making time for us today. Thank you for having me. And that is the California Report for this Thursday, March 18. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. Thank you for listening.
0: Support for the California Report comes from Water Heaters Only, specializing in the repair and replacement of water heaters since 1968, licensed and insured, open 24 hours a day, every day. Learn more at waterheatersonly.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone, everywhere, and College Futures Foundation, supporting KQED special broadcasts from college campuses and other higher education reporting. Learn more at collegefutures.org.
2: Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book.
1: That's donate.kqed.org/slash podcast.
2: Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world.
3: I love this place. We were once seen as like the place to be California.